Travis Bader, and this is the Silvercore Podcast. Silvercore has been providing its members with the skills and knowledge necessary to be confident and proficient in the outdoors for over 20 years, and we make it easier for people to deepen their connection to the natural world. If you enjoy the positive and educational content we provide, please let others know by sharing, commenting, and following so that you can join in on everything that Silvercore stands for. If you'd like to learn more about becoming a member of the Silvercore Club and community, visit our website at silvercore.ca. All right, you guys are going to make me work for it today. I've got a few guests on the Silvercore podcast, and I like to make sure I get a decent intro for everybody because I, I view it like somebody coming into your house. You don't ask somebody to come into your house and introduce themselves. You bring them into your house, and you introduce them to your guests who are going to be there, and that's exactly what I'm going to attempt to get through with the three of you, I had to cull back some of the accolades just to make this one flow. So today I'm joined by Linda Miller, a competitive shooter who has won medals at the Commonwealth Games, Cuba World Cup, Mexico World Cup, and was the first woman to win the Ontario Lieutenant Governor's Medal for shooting. Retired Captain Keith Cunningham, with over 25 years of experience in the Canadian and U.S. Armed Forces, combat tours of Vietnam, peacekeeping, and counter-sniping operations in Cyprus, and together with Linda, run Milken Training Center, and they coach high-level competitive shooters and professionals around the world, and have authored the book Mental Marksmanship, which we've discussed in past episodes of the Silvercore podcast with my friend Ryan Stacy. Finally, retired Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman of the U.S. Army, founder of the Grossman on Truth, author of numerous books, notably on killing, the psychology, the psychological cost of learning to kill in war and society, and has teamed up with Linda and Keith in their brand new book on hunting, a definitive study of the mind, body, and ecology of the hunter in the modern world. Welcome to the Silver Core Podcast, Linda, Keith, and Dave. Thank you, Travis. Thanks, Travis. You sound very exciting. I'm really glad you did the intros. Yes. Hey, you know, it's always easier for somebody else to... You bet. So we've, we're, um, you guys are just wrapping up a week of recording your audio book for On Hunting. And right now, I believe you guys are all in Dave's house in separate rooms. I think we've got all of our technical issues kind of sorted and um, there might be a little bit of delay while we're talking here. Hopefully that doesn't interrupt the flow too much. But I, what I'm really curious about is what was the impetus for the book on hunting? How did this first come about? You're up, Dave. Uh, well, I, I've had the idea for a long time. Um, I, I wrote on killing and uh, it evolved into on combat, uh, the two distinctly different dynamics. But the, the third leg of understanding human beings is hunting. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's all we did. You know, that Linda, there's a great quote in the book mm. about if the existence of mankind was 24 hours, right up until the last six minutes, all we did was hunt. You know, it's who we are. It's what we were built to do. It's what we were designed to do. And, and I mentioned it to Linda one time. Uh, and I thought, what do you think about co-opting this book? I've got an outline and a concept. It passed it to Linda, and boom. You know, I'll let her take it from there. 
So next, um, as with most of these things, I had to actually get knowledgeable about hunting because like most people, I was a hunter, but I really didn't know much more than just how to, you know, ask my gunsmith to keep my gun tuned and go out into the stand and, you know, shoot a deer when it arrived. So I did a lot of reading. I read a couple of hundred books, um, some of them very old, some of them very new. And it was very interesting to see other people's perspectives on hunting and some of their their discomforts. Uh, and where I thought it all tied back together again was very, very old times. And my first idea was that old times were back to the um, uh, gods and goddesses of the great Greek and Roman empires, because they all had, you know, gods and goddesses, usually goddesses of, of the hunt. And then I realized that that's not old. What's old is Stone, Stone Age man, or even earlier before, certainly well before written records and well before a lot of artifacts. And we were hunters all that time. We came from hunting stock and trying to get an understanding of the depth of that connection drove a lot of my reading. And then, you know, there were other things that Dave had on his wish list, and I think we met him all. Um, he thought that we needed to talk about ethics. So we talked about um, and did a fair bit of research about how animals behave and what kind of ethics they would have brought to the table before man. And then how early man would have, what ethics they would have, ethic, mostly ethics of efficiency, because you can't be spending more calories than you're getting, you know, or you're not going to live. Um, and right through to modern times when we have much more capable um, killing power. And we need to temper that uh, in order to have a fair and safe hunt. And so then we, what, what else did we want to cover, Dave? It was um, uh, the tools and skills, I think. Eh? What's in common uh, across time and around the world and the types of skills that you need and the kinds of tools that you're now more or less allowed to use. They're all available to us. We could go back to atlatls and slingshots, but many <laughs> jurisdictions here are not allowed to use those for a game hunt. Um, and then we talked about the relationship between some of those skills and processes to um, other things that you might be knowledgeable in. Um, police work, military, anything that involves any kind of, of stalking and tool use and uh, if need be then killing and so we looked at, at that and the connections and then finally we looked at what's the place of the hunter in the modern world is there a place and what does that what does that look like and how does he participate and contribute and what we found was that because we're all under the skin all wired to be hunters that we all can access this incredible depth of history that we, our little pool of genes has to those pools of genes that, that are our forebears. I find that so interesting. And Keith, did you want to chime in on there at all? Of the, I don't know if Dave, thoughts? I don't know if Dave mentioned it, but uh, the, the part that kind of, kind of perked my ears up was when one time we were at, at one of Dave's seminars, and he he uh, said to Linda, "I'm going to make you famous and rich." 
And and Linda said, well, I'm not too, I don't care much about the famous, but I'm very interested in that rich part. And uh, my contribution to the book was pretty much to stay out of Linda's way while she was reading all those, all those 200 and some books. Uh, and then throughout the book, we needed uh, campfire stories. And so that's where I came in and, uh, and wrote several of those, uh, those campfire stories, which I enjoyed writing. And I certainly enjoyed uh, reading them uh, when we did this audiobook. As There's we something the just so human about... Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, say, say again, no, Dave. As we were doing the narration, uh, the campfire stories that Keith had written were really the areas that choked us all up. Uh, that was so powerful. And then Linda did her homework, but the, all of the areas are kind of anticipated, the one that came out of nowhere and really was most important was the whole business of, uh, of sustaining the ecology. And we got the Nairobi, you know, we got the, the Kenya versus, Linda kind of run with that. I think it's most important thing in the book and I didn't see that coming is where the hunter is really the deep pockets and the great resources to sustain conservation over the years. Yeah, if I may be so crude, we're the only ones who actually give a damn. Hunters. Hunters. Yeah. yeah. It's not the first time I've heard that. You know, hunters will quite often be, you know, the bird watchers, they like going out there and watching the birds just like we do, but why aren't they contributing to conservation the right. same way, right? Yeah. If they had hunters, buy a hunting license to do it, and, uh, and uh, you know, and, and pay for a tag for every deer that, or for every bird that they spotted, they probably wouldn't, you know, wouldn't pursue that sport. And then here are hunters paying vast amounts of money to do what they need to do, but but Linda, dive into that Kenya versus uh, Namibia model. Sorry, was there a question in there for me? Yeah, can you go ahead and, and you know, what's happening in Kenya, what's happening in Namibia, and that, and that comparison sure. dynamic? Yeah. Um, Kenya had a really serious problem um, decades ago with, uh, with poaching and a lot, uh, both for ivory. It was called the Ivory Wars. Um, but there were lots of other um, uh, victims in in what was going on, and and there were lots of very powerful parties who were supporting uh, illegal meat trade and any kind of high value uh, ivory or anything like that. Um, and so the government of Kenya said, absolutely no more. We're not going to allow anything to be taken uh, in, in any kind of hunting or poaching. Well, it's easy to stop hunting because we're all law-abiding and, you know, pay a great deal to hunt, um, but it's not so easy to stop poaching. Right. So the first thing that happened in Kenya is that the animal population absolutely dropped um, because everybody, there were no hunters, there was no investment in uh, in anti-poaching efforts it just they took over and they killed i think the best estimate is something between 70 and 80 percent of the game in kenya now it has come back a little bit but they still don't have the kind of funding that hunters had brought so they're still struggling somewhat they have a booming business in uh, in safaris uh, photo safaris and um, and that's great, uh, but but it doesn't contribute to the economy the way uh, safari hunting does. 
Namibia, on the other hand, had um, had a, an unfortunate war with South Africa with a good outcome. The outcome was that Namibia won their independence from South Africa, and the people who were in charge said, we're not going to follow that Kenya example. What we're going to do is we are going to set up conservancies, and the conservancies are going to be owned. Uh, some are owned by tribes, some are owned by investors, some are owned by um, people that have lived there for, uh, for several generations uh, with some German background in them. And um, the conservancies are huge. The one that we were on was 25,000 acres. And they are in charge of keeping their animal population up so that it can be hunted. And when it is hunted, the meat, of course, is all used. Uh, it goes either to the um, running of the business on the conservancy or to the local indigenous tribe, or if it's a, an indigenous uh, conservancy, then of course they, uh, they take care of the meat and, and uh, give it out or sell it uh, in some cases. So it's, it's a booming business. Uh, it, the animals become assets and it's in everyone's interest to take care of them. And it's worked extremely well. Yeah, it's interesting that North American model of conservation and, and how it is applied and how other places can pick it up. Once you commoditize something and you realize that it's a, it's a resource and there's a scarcity to it, all of a sudden the idea of conserving that becomes first and foremost. It gives it value. And, you know, if, if you outlaw hunting, the poachers will go around. All of a sudden that life really has it lacks the value that it has when it's when you're hunting. And I've, I've got friends who are do security and work over in South Africa. And, you know, I remember we're having sushi over here in Delta. And a guy gets a text message come in and he looks at this, makes kind of a funny face and puts it down. I was like, what was that about? He's like, oh, there's some poachers they caught over in, in the fellow's property that they, he knows of. And really and he's oh I, yeah and he shows you the picture and there's three guys that just killed them and that's what they do with poachers over there they just very very ruthless justice now it creates a very different system when you bring that value for the life of the animal out of it and it's kind of like life and death right death is what gives life value when we start looking at these animals and our resources as something that is going to be i guess a commodity all of a sudden it gets respected in a different way. At least that's my observation. And when looking, reading through your book, I, I see some of um, the work, Dave, that you've done in the past on you know, from on killing bleeding over into this. And I, I see a parallel between a number of uh, uh, these ideas. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, this, this really is, you can't understand killing. You can't understand combat until you understand hunting. So on killing, for example, if you go to Google Scholar, scholar.google.com, uh, and you look up uh, uh, any work and see how many times it's been cited in scholarly works. Uh, and I, I was at this thing where this one academic guy was retiring and they said his, his, his papers have been cited over, you know, 200 times. I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. You know, throughout his lifetime, his stuff has been, well, what about my stuff? So I went to google.scholar.com. And on killing alone has been cited over 3,600 times. Well, that's what on hunting is going to wow. be. Wow. It's going to be that level of scholarly dynamic. And Linda's laid that foundation. She did her lit review. You know, she put it all together. But here's the heart of the matter. That crazy American 
will pay, well, what's the record, Linda, a quarter of a million dollars to, to go over and shoot that, that, that lion. Who's, and here's the key. He's at the end of his life cycle anyway. And oh, by the way, death by old age and nature is a horrible, hideous, slow death as you're eaten alive by rodents and insects. Mm. You know, they, 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 nobody puts you, unless there's a predator there, they put you out of your mercy, out, out of your, you know. Uh, what, mm. We had one part in there where a guy said, if, if they watched a calf wildebeest being killed and eaten alive on this photo safari, within within 30 seconds, everybody on the safari was screaming, put him out of his mercy, but put him out of his misery. And, right. and, and that's the ethical kill of the hunter at the end of the life cycle. And that pays for all of the game wardens you would ever need to protect that game. This is so important to get across, is what we're doing. So killing, uh, as you said, is, is commoditized, but they, they're going to die. They're in the life cycle, and it's a slow, hideous death, and we can get value from that death. We honor that creature. Uh, we honor their memory, and, uh, and the money goes back into the community. It's, it's brilliant, and I, I never saw that coming, and Linda, just, and, Linda and Keith and their... Uh, uh, in their uh, their own safaris, had really given great information to make that come alive. Is that is that tie in, Keith? You know, from your perspective, of me. I'm sure. Was there a question? I, I have trouble <laughs> hearing Keith. And I have trouble hearing Dave, so I'm not sure if there was a question in there for me. Uh, yeah, just give around Keith gunfire too long, Keith. <laughs> Thank you for that compliment. <laughs> what was the question? Just what what you had to, to to add into that equation of the 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 hunting and your experiences in Namibia and how how it kind of framed this model of the the economics of of the modern, the hunter in the modern world. It was incredibly obvious uh, when you go and hunt on those uh, uh, conservatories and uh, and deal with the the DHs and all of their uh, trackers. Uh, exactly how uh, that model uh, is playing out, and it was it was just so obvious. Uh, it would be good if our own our, our own uh, lawmakers here were to to see that sort of stuff. One of the things that really stuck in my mind is uh, the PH told us uh, of a drought that was going on uh, in the land, and, and uh, the animals on his conservatory, twenty five thousand acres, were starving to death. Uh, and so he had to bring in feed, uh, and it wasn't a lot. It was just enough to try to keep them, them going. He had to bring in feed and, and feed the animals until the next rain came. Uh, and it was hunters that, uh, that backed him on that with money. There wasn't one anti-gunner, one greenie, one anybody else at all uh, that helped them with that uh, except the hunters. And I think that says a whole lot right there. We're the ones that give a damn. Yeah. And these why are do you little... think that is? Because there's nothing. Oh, I was going to say, why do you think that is? Because there's nothing stopping the bird watcher from buying a uh, a migratory bird tag. There's nothing stopping the hiker or the photographer from going out and contributing to conservation in the exact same way that that hunters do. Well, I think that why, why is it the hunters? Well, I think it is because if 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 uh, anti hunter goes out and bag uh, and buys a tag, the concept is that he's supporting hunting. Uh, and in fact, if it was to ever get out, that if they wanted to reduce the number of animals killed in a hunt, all they got to do is go out and buy every tag uh, that's available out there. Uh, but we won't let that get some out. Some do that. We won't let that get out. So some... 
It, sometimes they do that. I get, for example, when the grizzly bear hunt in British Columbia was permissible. Right now, it currently isn't. Uh, there are indigenous groups that are like, they're saying, look at the conservation of our grizzly uh, population is not being addressed properly. And we are now taking matters into our own hands and we are initiating culls or putting bounties on the grizzlies. I mean, the idea of this, this feel good, uh, live and let live and everything lives, it, it sounds good in theory, but the reality of humanity in recorded history would say that it doesn't play out in, pra in the practical world. And there's probably a reason why. Like maybe the life-death cycle and that struggle, both in the human sense as well as with animals, is just an innate part of us. And I think you guys touch on that in a way in the book. That, that's really intriguing. Well, I think the anti-hunters uh, just simply don't know what they don't know. Uh, they're in a very uh, emotional bunch, uh, and they go off in, in, in that uh, tangent. Uh, they don't uh, look into it. They don't study it. They just don't know what they don't know. They figure, well, you're killing animals. You must be doing it all wrong. Well, they're wrong. Uh, you know, uh, there's there's more conservation uh, from us hunters than, than they ever thought of providing. How do we get that message to them? How do we get that message in a way where everyone's pushing together in a, in the because we've got the same goals. We all want to see the animals. We all want to... It's not, as Shane Mahoney would say, that we have dominion over the animals. It's that we are one of them, and we all work together in a certain way. And I believe that the anti-hunters and the hunters both want that same goal of having, having our ecosystem, having natural resources, having the animals around, but we're approaching it from two different ways. How do we kind of get in the same line? I think, I think the I think we got to pursue exactly what we're doing. I think uh, they pursue it from the emotional side, and of course the hunters pursue it from the scientific side. Uh, we got lots of biologists out there that are that are uh, saying the way it needs to be done, and I think we just need to, uh, you know, steer the steady course and uh, and keep doing that. And you you hear a little bit less. I don't think I hear so much protesting as there used to be. And I think a lot of the protesters are maybe starting to have a bit of this scientific logic dribble into their little their little brains, uh, and it may be starting to to show up just a little wee bit now. And I think if we just keep on doing it, there's lots and lots of good models out there. Africa it, it has lots of good models on how it happens. You know, here uh, in North America, we've got more we've got more deer, moose, and elk than we ever had. Uh, you know, in the last hundred years, uh, it's working. And I think we just got to stay the course. Educate them whenever we can. Well, when is the last time that rational... Th oh, sorry, Dave, go on. No, no, I was going to say, if we could just write a really powerful book on this subject, a book that others <laughs> could say, here, read, read this and you'll understand. If we could just... Yeah. If somebody would just write this book... And, and, and then hunters can grab this book and shove it at them and say, here, read this. Now you'll understand. If only somebody could just write that book. <laughs> well, well I think, Yes? I think one of the things we have to be a little careful about is that the hunters is fewer than 10%. The anti-hunters, as far as we can figure, are something fewer than 5%. In between are a whole bunch of non-hunters for a vast number of reasons, they just don't hunt. 
And we've, we spent the last week doing an audio book with a fellow who fell in that category. And he was absolutely educated, moved, astonished, and said he felt blessed. It was a life-changing event for him to listen to our book. So I think it's that vast middle group that, that we can reach and, and get some effective traction. I didn't realize that those numbers, I didn't realize from the way that the anti-hunters speak and have their voice heard, you would think they far outweigh the, the lowly hunters here, the, the few far and few between. I didn't realize that we almost, hunters almost double anti-hunting. That's interesting. Well, the and the, the huge, huge number of, of, of votes and determination and strength are with the non-hunters. And they're a much more amenable group to our message. I can't think of the last time when I've been able to use rational, logical thought to combat an emotional argument. And I think that's where the campfire stories, like we are contributing there, Keith, are extremely important. Because we're humans are storytellers at heart. I mean, we are drawn to the story. We're drawn to the visual story, the audio story, the whatever it might be and sitting around a campfire is as old as fire itself i mean soldiers they would talk about having hexy tv right which is the little hexamine tablets and they sit there watching that thing zoning out and it's a bit of an escape and the, yeah. the hexy tv combining that with the stories of how things have been done in the past is the traditional way how we've always carried that information forward and i personally i think you guys are probably touching on that key piece because the emotional argument side doesn't want to listen to facts but if you can touch that emotional side to the story that incorporates those facts i think that's probably the best possible solution here i think you can start most discussions with the anti-hunters with three words kenya and namibia Go off and study those two from a hunting point of view, and, and you'll see the difference. Ah. And then you can stick our book yeah, in their that's... face, or maybe even slap yeah. them with it. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the other powerful component that I didn't see coming until we all got together and did it was this audiobook. I don't think there's ever been an audiobook like it. Uh, Keith was reading the, the, the summaries and the forewords and, the, and then a chapter title, so when, a subtitle. A section title so and then he read the campfire stories and then you know all these wonderful wonderful quotes that that linda had pulled together the best words from the best people she read all the quotes and then i read you know kind of the text in between and and, and so there's all of us but what's really cool is the guy who did the recording he was doing all kinds of outtakes we would say oh by the way you know here's what happened here and we'd laugh about this and we'd fumble over this <laughs> And so this may be the first audiobook ever done with an outtakes reel that allows oh, people awesome. to dig deep. It's just so much fun. You got to listen to the audio. It's going to be fun. And it will be part of the tool that allows us to, to get this information in their hands. You know, you, you know, you go for a drive, you plug in an audiobook, and you listen an hour a day during your commute. Uh, at the end of this book, you will be informed and transformed and and again, with Keith's, uh, you know, the, those campfire stories and the, those great quotes, uh, it comes together to form something very powerful. 
I think those outtakes are are important too because it humanizes you. Yeah. Instead yeah. of that professional at the other end of the microphone that's just relaying information, they're like, oh, okay, yeah, they're imperfect just like me, or they 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 can make mistakes or get upset or <laughs> flub things just like me. And that humanizing process is something that I I see. Um, Modern social media and the way that people communicate, it seems to be uh, have a dehumanizing approach to it, and it creates an us against them sort of mentality. And when yeah. we can start looking at people that we would say as the opposition or the other side and realize that their goals and intentions, by and large, will align very much with our own and one on one dealing with them, they're pretty darn good people. Yeah. Uh, yes. We just seem to differ on a few different ways of application. That humanization is hugely important. You know, from the perspective of that, we're, tell them about... So we're uh, talking Linda, about ethics. Yeah. Linda, oh, tell boy. them about on-runting. I can't remember what I said. I said something about on-runting. It seemed right to me at the time. And Keith came back with what? Uh, let's write a book on, on rutting. It seemed funnier at the time. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. So as you're in... knee deep in all this stuff, and yeah. after a full long week of recording the audio, oh, let's write our next book. On <laughs> right. You'll you'll hear more details in the in the outtakes. So ethics, you brought those up as one of the important pieces of the puzzle in here. So ethics. I always remember because so we hold the contract for online hunter education in British Columbia. One of the things that the province wants uh, BC residents to know is the difference between morals and ethics and how ethics apply and how morals apply. And, you know, ethics are external. Morals are my own, right? Ethics are something that's kind of everyone agrees on together. And morals are something that I will hold to myself. And it's a standard that I'm, I need to be able to meet. So ethics are going to change depending on where we are. People will have different ethics in different areas of the world that that the culture and the group hold things perhaps a little bit differently. What was the take in the book on ethics? Was it thought to try and systemize ethics and so everyone's basically on the same page? Not, not at all. Not at no? all, no. Okay. It's more uh, an explanation of what ethics is, what some types of ethics are, so some people think they're being ethical if they follow all the rules, and some people think they're ethical if they're um, one step closer to God. Do, do you know what I mean? Like they're uh, yes. uh, yeah. It's a very very different kind of of set of ethics, and most people subscribe to a few ethics from half a dozen different types of ethics. And and you're exactly right. They're culturalized, so they it isn't one size fits all at all. You you really need to come to terms with your own moral behavior and uh, I guess my favorite line in the book on that is that uh, morals and ethics are the things that you do when nobody's watching right but that brings us you back know, to something really important a, um... was that that hunter's oath to talk about that Linda ah. so there is this you know with all that said there's still the hunter's oath that you introduced that's so powerful and that's that's Keith Spalewick. Yeah. Well, I don't I don't have it memorized, and I don't have. I was just looking around here to see if there was a, a copy. Linda has the copy in there, and uh, and the Hunter's Oath is in there someplace. And 
it's a good sort of general general statement to uh, to follow from an ethics point of view. Linda's looking for well, it. Perhaps, perhaps I add that to the description, but and what we do here in the on the video and the audio format, and people can have a copy of the Hunter's Oath that they can kind of uh, look at. But uh, if that's all right with you guys, you but maybe we just talk about it generally. And and it wraps up the book wraps up with the Hunter's Prayer, which is also another you know it, it actually began as I understand the Sniper's Prayer. And it evolved into this hunter's prayer, and that's another one about Linda and Keith's amazing contributions to the community. We've got a we've, well. That's a very we've got a book on the go right now called the Sniper's Prayer, um, and uh, and Linda wrote in the back uh, the Sniper's Prayer, uh, and it, what hmm. what's amazing about that, of course, is that Linda was never a sniper. She was never in the military, uh, and yet she captured the whole essence of, of what it's like to, to be a sniper. Well, there's a very similar, very thin line between being a sniper and being a hunter. Uh, and so she uh, she changed the words slightly and turned it into the hunter's prayer. And that's that's in the book uh, as well. And uh, they're just amazing. Did you find the oath there, Linda? I did find the oath. Do you want me to read yes, it? Yes, please. I can do that. I have the capability. The Hunter's Oath by Captain Keith A. Cunningham. I pledge on my honor as a hunter to follow the laws of nature, always to hunt ethically, and to obey the laws of the land. I further pledge to develop and maintain the skills required to develop an effective and humane shot to my quarry. I promise to always do everything within my power to recover my game animal and use it with respect for the life given. Oh, I like that. <laughs> That's a poem. And it's so simple. And it wraps it yep. wraps up what a hunter is very succinct, succinctly. Yep. Yeah. Because anyone outside of that is a poacher. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I, I, and, I mean, and, and if sorry, go go on, Linda. If you're if you're not following all of those elements, you might want to just take a little look inside next time you're sitting in a tree stand and wondering what you need to be spending your time on. Just Take a look at that oath and see if you have done everything, all of those elements, as well as you want to. You know, it's very easy for people to get caught up in the competition of it all, right? When they spend so much money to get their kit and gear, when they spend so many seasons chasing game and being unsuccessful, when they uh, travel to a remote location, or they take time off of work, and they start getting very, the goal for people can quite often be the animal. I've got to get this animal. And sometimes otherwise ethical people or people that you would view as ethical can get caught up in the the excitement or the competition or the ego or whatever it might be of the moment and really challenge what their core beliefs are. And I remember, you know, any hunter out there who's been hunting for some time will have a story of when their ethics are put to the test, when their morals are put to the test and how they responded to that. I, I remember even just last season, a friend of mine says, let's go out. We, neither of us were able to get a draw in BC for a bull moose, but they've got an open season in this one area for spike forks. So they've got to have a maximum of two on 
uh, on one side. And uh, let's see what we can do. And we were putting in long hours, trekking through swamps and uh, covering tons of territory on a side-by-side, uh, -side, tons, of, tons of territory by foot. And anyways, one evening we're driving back to base camp, going out the hill. We're about a half a kilometer away from base camp. And what do we see? Two moose skedaddling up the road. And first thing you go is like, holy crow, look at that. You look and it's, that's a spike fork. It's illegal. It's one that, it's a legal animal that we are allowed to harvest. We're allowed to take. And you're looking at this and look at the watch and it's like, no, we're, we're about five minutes after last light. Can't do it. But for a lot of people, they would say, who's going to know? <laughs> Nobody's going to see this, right? The problem is. You take that. And the worst part about these two moose was we're, we sat down, we looked at each other and said, no, it's, it's after last sight. We can't do it. Let's just let them skedaddle. So we wait and they go around the corner. We give them about 20 minutes or so because they were kind of going slow. We go around the corner and there they are still. <laughs> like they just weren't going. And we've been searching forever for these things. But the problem is you go home. Are you going to enjoy that? Are you going to be able to tell that story afterwards around the campfire and say, Oh, that one time we were able to shoot those animals after last light. Are you gonna every time you eat it, you're gonna remember the time that you were a poacher and not a hunter. It's just not worth it. Yep. You're an ethical hunter, sir. Well, there's always gonna be times when those ethics are put to the test, right? And it's it's in those moments that you can then turn around afterwards and be proud of yourself and share that experience with others and share it with your family and your children and and uh, ho hopefully that bleeds off into others and you build an environment of people who are sharing those same core values. What was that saying the other day, Dave? Somebody said, you don't convert people by evangelism, you convert people by your own behavior. Yeah, better to live the sermon than to preach it. There it is, yeah. What was it, better to what? Better to live the sermon than to preach it. Oh yeah, I, yeah. I thousand percent believe that. The example is the best way of leadership, right? They, everyone has that rules for thee, or, or, or rules for you, but not for thee. Yeah. And when they talk about politicians, the ones that we truly admire and truly respect are the ones who will actually walk the walk, and they will do what they say. And maybe not so much out there preaching to everyone else, telling them what's up and how to do it, but you can see through their example that they're living the lifestyle that you aspire to. That's a, that's one of the things in this book that uh, I would imagine would be a difficult thing because if you're coming across as an authority and you're trying to provide the information is to walk that delicate tightrope of telling people what's up with a wagging finger and laying out information on the table for them to be able to make a decision from. Actually, it's pretty easy. Well, I think you guys made it look easy. We, we went through a voyage of discovery, and, and if you remember your own voyage, it's very much easier to tell the story in a way that other people can share your voyage rather than you telling them where they have to moor the boat. Mm. So <laughs> when we look at hunting, and over in North America, this is predominantly, there's a term that a, another fellow runs a business here in Vancouver, he taught me about he calls them gouds g-o-w-d's like what is a gowd he's like it's a grumpy old white dude 
right? <laughs> and, and, and that's the stereotypical hunter of the past is this grumpy old white dude. Like, you can't come on this area. This is my land. This is my area. I've been hunting it all this time. And um, they're trying to take away my rights. And they're trying to, and there's a, there's this negative connotation associated with hunting by a lot of anti-hunters and, and new people getting into hunting as well. There's a barrier to entry. And one thing that I was talking about with the executive director of the Wildlife Federation in the podcast that just released recently was how the face of hunting is changing and the demographics are changing and the way that we are able to incorporate traditional belief systems and values into all of those who are getting in who come from different backgrounds and different ways of life. And I think the future of hunting as it's being approached currently is actually looking pretty optimistic but i'd be curious after all of the research you've done in on hunting what does the future of hunting look like to you i think there's there's an, enough biological or biologists out there who are, are who are preaching the importance of hunting i think it's got uh, it's got legs yet um i don't think the the greens are uh, and anti-hunters are 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 loud enough yet or to to take that away from us i think it has it has a future i think it'll continue for you know generations yet and that might be me wishful thinking but i think that's <laughs> i i also am very hopeful that we'll vote trudeau out next go around too and so if we just <laughs> if we just think positively enough about it all it just may come to pass well, you and the majority of other Canadians, according to recent polls, yes, are Keith. yes, thank goodness. <laughs> and I see that the Liberals. Um, are... I did. Go ahead, Linda. I did a lot of research uh, of um, trends around the world, and what I found now it was hard to get really recent numbers because we were in the middle of a pandemic and nobody was doing anything, including gathering stats. They were busy taking care of the home fires. But uh, the trend since certainly the early 2010s or so has been for hunting numbers to be increasing in most areas around the world and for the percentage of females hunting to be increasing. Now, it, it, there's a huge barrier to entry for women and it's not, it's not what you might think. It's that they don't know how to get started. They don't know where to go to get started. So we do have some suggestions in the book. There are some universities running courses. There are, um, in fact, one of our dear friends just started hunting by going and getting a guided hunt. Now it was for turkey. It wasn't an expensive hunt, but it, it gave her an opportunity to, to be schooled in some of the ways of hunting that you don't, you don't necessarily get from reading a book or trying to figure out what your granddad might've been doing with that old gun. So I think there's a, a lot of hope. I honestly, in complete candor and humility, think that the On Hunting book will give support to those people so that they'll see that, yeah, I'm, I'm part of a growing community here. I'm, I'm not a freak. Uh, this is really something that's right for people to do and, and really right for women to do, to get involved in. So I, I'm also optimistic. I think it's interesting. Linda talked about some uh, of, if not the. Linda talked about a uh, an anti-hunter online, and he said, "Well, I support the World Wildlife Foundation, and I contribute to them." And well, guess what? 
they support hunting as a part of conservation. And, uh, and that's a victory, mm-hmm. that their, their official position supports hunting as part of conservation. You know, you get, I got the little stuffed panda, panda, you know, and I, I support the animals. And, and <laughs> WWF, is that right? Is that right, uh, Lindy? Did I get that w- right? Yeah, WWF. <laughs> I didn't realize that they were supporters of hunting. Yes. Yeah, they, they aren't as noisy about it the last couple of years as they have been in the past but they have stood with hunting and hunters because they see what the economics are. The money comes from the hunters and the animals be- benefit. And they, they get that because that's what their mission is. I, th- I think from a societal standpoint, when we looked at the last few years going through the COVID lockdowns and pandemic and all the rest of that associated with that, there is a, uh, a rekindled fire in people to want to get outdoors to want to learn some traditional skills to be self-sufficient to and that combined with the movement the food movement of knowing where your food comes from local sustainable food and i think the pendulum of moving away from hunting i think the pendulum is starting to swing a bit because people are having a difficult time trusting where their food the chemicals that might be used and how the farms are are uh, treating the animals that they might be getting and they're looking at the hunting for more than just that one split second when the trigger is pulled or the arrow is let loose hunting is everything that surrounds that it's a lifestyle of being in tune with the nature of being in tune with the animals of being in tune with the seasons that are and there's a very natural part to the human condition that i think is drawn towards that I think we're moving away from this. Everything comes in processed food, and or here's one pill you can take a day, and you get all your vitamins and nutrients from it. And I think people are realizing the sort of spiritual side of just being out and communing with nature that's associated with hunting. And most people will never, if they haven't hunted, will not experience the range of emotions and connectedness to their natural environment like those who do hunt. 100%. Amen. There's a quote that you guys have in the book that I really liked. Let me see if I can pull that up really quick. And it's, um, yeah, here it is. It says, one of the delights of hunting is getting mentally and emotionally lost in nature. It is a total absorption in the present moment. The reality of everyday anxiety fades, and the hunter becomes immersed in the natural world. He feels connected to something much bigger than himself. Can you guys talk a bit more on that? Like, what is that to you? That's, that's what it's all about. That's the hunter who goes out on the first day of the season, sees his, the kind of animal that is perfect for him to take and doesn't take it because he doesn't want the hunt to be over in less than 24 hours. He wants to hold on to that feeling for as long as he can and, and yes, get his game animal if he can, but it's, being there for that feeling that puts him in the bush and keeps him coming back. I think I agree with I agree with Linda, although there certainly has been times when I have spent lots and lots of cold, wet, miserable days out there and not seen anything um, that I am sometimes fearful not to take the first one, uh, the first good one that comes <laughs> along. You know, the old saying, Yep. Don't bypass uh, on the first day the one you'd take on the last day. 
Uh, so there is mm. there is that to it. But but certainly being out being out in the wilderness, being out in the bushes, I've often said I get a much more spiritual uh, feeling um, being out in the bush than I ever did when my grandmother used to drag me to church and make me sit <laughs> in the in the shadow of, of stained glass and hardback seats. Um, if mm-hmm. if I could, if I I really like the the religion that the that the natives had, where everything had a spirit out in the bush, uh, and uh, and that's that's where I'm most at certainly most at peace out there. You know, I think. How about you, Dave? Yeah, one of the one of the pathologies of modern life is thinking that you don't have to kill. You're taking yourself out of the natural cycle of life. It's it's a, it's a deep pathology. Well, you know, I, I'm a, I'm vegan. Well, we exterminate billions of rats and mice around the granaries every year. Otherwise, they would get in the granaries and they would reproduce exponentially, and we would all starve. Your body right now is killing millions of microorganisms. When you stop doing that, your body rots and dies. To live is to kill, and to think that you don't have to kill because you buy it packaged in the store or you you get it secondhand and just, I'm a vegan, right? But all of these creatures mm. had to die, and all of this, this piece of land had to be turned into farmland so that you could be a vegan. Yet to live is to kill. And 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 yeah. so hunters are into, you say, oh, I can be spiritual, I can be in the woods, I can identify, no. If you're not part of that cycle of life, and that's one of the things that Linda has nailed over and over again, if you're not part of that cycle of life, if, and hunters truly understand death, that that deer died so I can live, and I will die, and I will be worm food someday, and that's okay. You know, one of the things that, that anti, well, how would you like to be eaten? Well, you will be. <laughs> you, you just don't know it. Yeah. Something's going to consume you, right? Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Amen. Um, what would you guys view as a success for this book? Once it's done, you know, number of copies sold, uh, messages received. What, what would be the ultimate success once this book is out into the general public? I think if we could get more people uh, thinking the way our sound engineer um, has, where he is a non-hunter, he's certainly not against hunting, he just didn't do it, uh, and uh, he ex- explained to us in, in incredibly wonderful terms just what this book has done for him, and, and he listened to it, he got emotional at the, at the, the parts that uh, we intended to people to get emotional at and and he absorbed that book and uh it has turned him around and i think if we could get and linda mentioned that crowd before uh the non-hunters uh is a much bigger group than either the anti-hunters or the hunters and if we get more people of the non-hunting to uh, read that book and just simply understand where we're coming from uh i think that would be a, a great great success just just more of what rick did Yep, I agree with that. Uh, one of the fellows that kindly read through the manuscript oh, it was right near the last draft, um, who's a non-hunter, uh, but a very meticulous person. He read through it and he came back and said, you could call this book On Humans instead of On Hunting because it's really about every one of us. 
And every person that reads it that comes away with that in their mind, success. You know, Travis, I, uh, I co-authored a book on gun control with Glenn Beck called Control, The Truth About Guns. New York Times bestseller, not one single review. Nobody, nowhere. They just give it zero oxygen. And, and, if, if, and the point is that we've got to have hunters that are inflicting this book on non-hunters. We've got to create a buzz. We've got to create an energy. And we've got this tool that we can place in their hands, but they've got to turn around and, uh, and, and have your kids read it. Have your, your relative read it. Uh, uh, and and we've got to get through that. You know, when, when you write about hunting, when you write about guns, they will automatically censor it, and they give it zero oxygen. So all the hunters out there mm. and all the people who, who love our way of life and understand what it's about, they've got to become, you know, they've got to become missionaries. You know, and, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, oh, you're preaching to the choir. When you preach to the choir, you get missionaries. You know, so you know, let's go out there and, uh, you know, <laughs> evangelize for our faith, which is, is as, uh, as Keith said, is, is out there in the forest being a part of that food cycle. And this is the tool that you can use to, to, to make that transition for, uh, to be the, the, the evangelist, the, the missionary that will, will take our, our, our faith and our beliefs and put it in the hands of others so they understand it and embrace that dynamic. And it truly will bring you deeper into the understanding of humanity. Even if you never hunt, even if you never have hunted, this book will give you far, far deeper understanding of our humanity, who we are, what we do, and our place in the world. So success would be all those hunters out there grabbing this book and, and creating buzz about it and talking on Facebook and talking online and, and wonderful, wonderful podcasts like yours uh, picking up on this and helping us get the word out. You know, as you're talking there, I get this image of people not in white shirts and black ties, but dressed up in camouflage, two by two, going through neighborhoods, knocking on doors. Have you heard the good word? Hold, hold, it, hold it up. Hold it up on hunting. That's outstanding. <laughs> Maybe they won't get the door slammed in their faces off the <laughs> Oh, man. Is there anything that we should be talking about that we haven't already talked about before we wrap things up? Okay. Well, I tell you what. I'm going to make sure we have links to where people can buy the book, where they can find out more information on the book. We'll put this. It's going to be up on YouTube. It'll be up on the podcast. Linda, Keith, Dave, thank you so very much for taking the time to write this book and for taking the time to be on the Silvercore podcast to talk about it. Appreciate it. Thank you, Travis. Thank you, Travis, for all you do. Amen.